saying, turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel. Taking just a short break because of death of the Queen to look at John 13. And we'll read the first 20 verses, but I'll pray. And then we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So John chapter 13, and we'll read the first 20 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. We have no idea how much the Lord Jesus loves us. Know it well, the hymn, the song. I was taught it by my parents. I trust I've taught it to my kids as well. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we know that we know Bible verses. We know that Jesus loves me. 
But if we're a born again believer here this afternoon, it is the case, I know it's the case, that we've not begun to scratch the surface of how much Jesus loves us. He loves us to the end. That's right there in verse 1. So let me just give you four brief ways how Jesus loves you this afternoon. First of all, he loves you to the end. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus understands at this point that his hour had come, his days are numbered, that soon he would die for the sins of the world. What would you do if you knew that you were going to die in less than a week? And it is a question worth considering if you think about it. It's only on the Tuesday that the Queen installed a new Prime Minister. And it's only less than 48 hours later. So what would you do? Many people would turn inward, feel sorry for themselves. I'm going to enjoy this and I'm going to do this, no consequence. But Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he turned his attention to others. It's astounding. It is amazing. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And his love was directed to his own. We've seen in, we read in John's Gospel about Jesus' special love. You see, God loves the world. He sent his son. But there is a special covenant people, shepherd, sheep love, that Jesus has. John speaks about it often. So Jesus has spoken to crowds. He's spoken to well-wishers. He's spoken to his enemies. But now he says, my love is directed to you. The few of you who gathered here for the feast of the Passover for this meal. In John's Gospel, the last week of the Lord's life, it does focus on the disciples, not so much on the crowd or the conflict with the Jewish leaders. We get that when we read later in John about his arrest and crucifixion, but mainly with his disciples. And moving into this upper room discourse, when all the world was falling away, and their Messiah is going to do the most Messiah, unlike Messiah thing possible in their minds, die. What does Jesus do? He washes their feet. He serves them. And he teaches them about the Trinity. He loves them. And on, the, the way, on his way to heaven, he reaffirms that he loves those who are in the world. That, in and of itself, is an act of condescension. People beneath him, people removed from him. It says that he loved them to the end, which is, a, in the Greek, it's telos. And that even comes to our English word sometimes. A telos is a final point, a fulfilment, an end, to the uttermost. What does it mean that he loves us, he loves them, to the end? It could mean that he loves them to the extreme. 
It could mean that he loves them to the end of his life, or he loves them until the end of time. I do not even know why we have to choose between those three. It can mean all three. He loves them to the end. Now, I'm not a big fan at all of the Lion King's theology. I think it is extremely dodgy, actually. But we all know, I mean, if you've watched the, the Lion King at all, Hakuna Matata. They say it's a wonderful phrase. But I'm telling you, this is a million times better phrase. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, sadly, in our fallen world, for example, not every marriage goes the distance. Not every parent-child relationship is sweet. If you have lived long enough, only a few years, you'll, you'll have friends who have hurt you. In school, you have so-called friends that you're close. But especially in school, they stab you in the back. Friends betray you. In Vienna, at the Christian school in Vienna, we had this wonderful thing. It's an American thing. I love it about Americans. It's the, it's the yearbook. It's the yearbook. I've got them at home. Every yearbook when, when I was the director of the school. And you, you just, on the last day of school, you took it around and you signed the yearbook. It's a thing. Some people say friends forever. But then you don't talk to them for 20 years. But they, you signed them friends forever. And when you've forgotten people, when you knew you should have rang somebody and you didn't, when others have forgotten you, when relationships have ended or been broken or separated by death, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you to the end. Loving his own in the world, he loved them to the end. So that's the first thing I want you to remember from, this, from John 13. One of the most incredible pas passages about servant. Jesus is the servant king. He loved them to the end. Secondly, I want you to see that he, does, he serves you to the extreme. Which is really the, the pertinent point why I'm talking about this this, this afternoon. He serves you to the extreme. Just notice the juxtaposition between what Jesus knows and what he does. You see it in verse 1. He knows. He knows that his hour is coming. Most of us, if we know our hour is coming of death, we will start having our last best meal. I know you see if you read about it in films, don't you? And I know, I know whether you've ever thought about what your last best meal is. Most people would put steak, I guess, but anyway. But when he knows his end is coming, he wants to love. Well, look at the same juxtaposition in verse 3. What does Jesus know? He knows that the Father has given all things into his hand. That is a lot to know that his heavenly Father had given the worlds to him. He has given all things. What else does Jesus know? He knows that he has come from God. He knows where he has come from. He knows where he is going. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. 
He knows where he is from. He knows where he is going to the realms of heaven and glory. But yet he saw this. Not as an opportunity to finally be free from his earthly humiliation. But he saw this moment as an expression of even greater condescension. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. If ever outside of the cross there was an example of Philippians, here it is. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you've been around some people or some place so much less than you were used to, you know, you know some place that's really difficult. I don't know if you've ever lived in a place that's been really difficult, really tough. You know, sort of um, maybe a university room or something. And you knew that you were ready to go back home. Back to that nice place that you were from. Back to that nice house, the nice food. Someone washing your clothes. The people who treat you right. Angels. You're going back. You're going back to all of that. Would you then, in your final days, use that as an opportunity to express even greater humility? Because what Jesus does in John 13 is a scandalous act of service. It's a scandalous act of service. He removed his outer garment. He has a long towel to gird his loins and probably over his shoulder. And a, and a long towel that could hang all the way down to dry his disciples' feet. The king of glory. The one whose kingdom we were talking about this morning. So if you like, he had a bare chest, bare legs, covered with a waist with a towel to do the work that only the most menial of servants would undertake. The Jewish law, not in the Old Testament, but, but in tradition, would not even allow Jewish servants to wash the feet of Jewish masters. It was the job of women or servants or Gentile servants or slaves. And of course, they weren't walking around in Nike trainers. And they didn't have, you know, sort of really expensive loafers or, or socks. They walked in sandals, in the dirt, everywhere. Walking in dust, muck, animals, mire. And so they come in. And when, you, when we think about them reclining at the table, it is not... How, Di, how Da Vinci painted the Last Supper. It really is not. It's not at a table like we would know a table. But it would have been some kind of thin dining couch. And they would have been reclining. And their feet would probably be fanned out from the middle. And Jesus approaches and pours the water into the basin and approaches them and kneels in a scandalous act of servanthood to wash their feet. There is nothing nice, if you like, about this. You know, some, some, some traditions have foot washing ceremonies. There's nothing nice about this. It's a scandalous act of humility. And Peter gets a lot of things wrong. 
But here he thinks he's finally gotten it right. This is going to be my best point ever, he's thinking. Ever since I called him the Christ. And then I, I misunderstood that, but never mind. I, did, I, I got that right, and now I'm going to get it right again. You can sort of see it come in. Jesus, come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're the master. You're the Lord. You don't serve us. We serve you. And he got that wrong. He got that wrong. Of course, in one sense, the Bible says that we are slaves to Christ. We owe him our obedience. He is the master. Jesus even says that later in the text. He called me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But in the main sense, he is our servant. It doesn't, almost, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right to say it, does it? It almost feels wrong to say it. But Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And though they did not know it, though they did not understand it, in a supreme act of humiliation, the Lord Jesus Christ displayed his supreme glorification by stooping to serve. Um, we, we re I refer to this book this morning, The Servant Queen, and there's a subsequent essay, it's on Mark Green's website, it's well worth reading, and he wrote subsequently that Christ the servant lies at the heart of it all. And uh, he, then he quoted what the Queen said in 2012. This is a time of year when we remember that God sent his only son to serve, not to be served. And then uh, Mark Green goes on to say, and it's, it's quite actually common, that concept of servant leadership is, is being around in management circles since 1970. A lot of people try and put it at the middle of their organisation, servant leadership. But Mark Green goes on to say, it's rare to see anyone who has lived that out as the Queen for so long. Servant leadership. And rare to find a public figure who consciously models her leadership on Jesus Christ. And uh, he goes on to say, um, the promise that she made to the nation on her 21st birthday I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. And it's poignant that this year, at her platinum jubilee, she opened her final paragraph with these words, and so as I look forward to continuing to serve you with all of my heart. And she signed her last letter, your servant, Elizabeth Hart. So that's, you know, it's an example really, but Jesus explains that example for them. And it's the way, ultimately, and I think that it's so poignant that the book says the servant queen and the king she serves. She pointed to the true monarch, the true king. And that is the way that Jesus Christ serves us. Because this is John's gospel. And John has wonderfully high Christology. You should really study John's gospel for the Christology that is in there. He is the Logos. The Word made flesh. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is the miracle worker, the one sent from the Father. He is the only way to the Father. He is the one who reveals the Father. He is the one who is God autotheos, 
We talked about that this morning. God of himself, himself. That Christ, that Jesus stooped to wash the disciples' feet. It's in the middle of John's Gospel with that high Christology. The claims that Jesus made about who he is. And then you've got John 13. He stooped to wash his disciples' feet. Even the feet of Judas. Have you thought about that? Even the feet of Judas, who would betray him. I go back to what I said at the beginning. We don't even scratch the surface when we say, Jesus loves me, this I know. We don't. We don't know how much he loves us. And he serves us to the extreme. And thirdly, the third thing, so there's, he loves you to the end. He serves you to the extreme. Jesus. And he cleanses you from top to bottom. But then Peter gives another Peter-esque response. You shall never wash my feet. You just have to love Peter, don't you? And I think it's right that we smile because we see him, we see so much of ourselves in him. But I just love the way that Jesus interacts with him. How, you know, how kind, how gentle he is. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you'll have no share with me. He means, you do not, he means that you do not have a part in his inheritance. You do not have the eschatological blessings. This is all or nothing, Peter. So Peter, oh, well I got that wrong a few minutes ago. I'm going to get this right now. You can, you can see it's stacking up. Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says, no, not that either. <laughs> At least he's trying, isn't he? And you've got verse 10, which is a difficult verse. There's a little footnote there. Some manuscripts omit except for his feet. Um, I think the best of the manuscript tradition has it as the ESV translates it, including that exception, except for his feet. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, and is, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. It's a bit confusing. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And Peter says, you need to wash all of me. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you do not understand. It's not about physical washing. You do not need the whole bath. You just need me. This isn't about physical water. This isn't about a physical bath. What you need is... Jesus to cleanse you. You need the cleansing power of Jesus. It's a symbol from top to bottom. But Jesus says all you need is this once for all, non-repeatable act of purification for your sins. That's what we stand on, that's what we believe. Non-repeatable act of cleansing from your sins. The symbolism is about service, but it's about cleansing. So just as Jesus displays humility in a lesser way, but still true, the disciples have an opportunity for humility. Because as uncomfortable as they were for their Lord and Master to unrobe and stoop and wash their feet in a basin and dry their feet with a towel wrapped around his waist, they have to be humble enough to know that they need it. So the question is, do you know that you need to be clean. 
We live in a world which basically thinks that we're inherently good. There's never really been a time like it, when most people think that they're really good, actually. Made a few mistakes. It's the classic one, isn't it? I made a few mistakes. But you're not dead in your fences. Would we put Jesus at arm's length? Not only because it seems awkward, and it's out of proportion for Jesus to be doing this. Or is there a part of us? No, Jesus, I do not exactly need this. I can take care of my own feet. I can step into my own basin. That, that is how many approach God. Just tell me where the Bible verse is, where it says God helps those who help themselves. Or cleanliness is next to godliness. They're in the same place in the Bible. Nowhere. I just need a little God. I need a little help. I need a little Jesus. I need Jesus to help me. I'm not filthy. I'm not, I, I scrubbed up well. I'm not dirty. I don't need a saviour to disrobe and wash my feet, do I? Oh, the question in the Gospel is, will you allow yourselves to be washed? in the blood of the Lamb, by the one who can, the only one who can cleanse you. So it takes humility on our part, but Jesus loves you to the end, he serves you to the extreme, and he cleanses you from top to bottom. Don't you love that about these verses? He loves you to the end, he serves you to the extreme, and he cleanses you from top to bottom. And fourthly, he loves you by pointing you to himself. And we see this in verses 18 through 20. Now they have been cleansed individually, but he says not all of you are clean. He knows, the Lord knows, that Judas is going to betray him. And part of what we see in the next scene is that they have a cleansing individually. And they're about to have a cleansing corporately. By the time you get to verse 30, Judas is going to leave them at night. The traitor in their midst, they'll be cleansed corporately from this filth. Verse 2 tells us that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. It is not to absolve Judas of his responsibility, but to emphasise how diabolical it is when we betray Jesus Christ. Do you ever notice in reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, there's lots of exorcisms. In John there is none. There's no exorcisms in John. And it's almost as if John wants us to see that a demonic activity concentrated is in the devil's work with Judas. I often wondered that, because that is where it is concentrated, this disciple. The one who broke bread with Jesus Christ betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus said that this was to fulfill Psalm 41 verse 9, that even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted my heel against me. Which could mean lifting up your heel to trip someone, lifting up a heel like you're walking out on someone, lifting up your heel to shake the dust of your feet, or lifting up a heel like a horse to kick. But whatever the image is, it is not a good one. 
It means betrayal. That one who was so close. The one who shared table fellowship with you. Your friends, your family. You have a meal together. You're in the home together. And now this one will lift up his heel to kick him or walk out on him. And literally Judas will walk out. But notice even here as he envisions the betrayal to come, Jesus is still thinking of them. He's pointing them to believe. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place you may believe that I am he. The Greek phrase, ego am I, I am. Which echoes of the divine name that is revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. I am. Ego am I. So Jesus says, I want you to see who I really am. So I'm telling you now what is going to take place. Because I know that you're hard of heart. I know that you're hard of hearing. And when it happens, I want you to remember that I told you so you will believe. Finally believe that I am the one who you have been waiting for. So that's why he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Likely not meaning the Holy Spirit, though he will send the Spirit, but meaning the disciples. One will betray Jesus, but eleven will be his disciples, and Jesus will send them out. They will believe in Jesus. They will preach in his name. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he is thinking of them. Now for most of us, all of us, it is not love to direct attention to yourself. Love to direct attention away from yourself. But Jesus, in a supreme act of love, not only is focused on them, but he wants them to be focused on him. And he can do that because he is the Christ. Of course it's not selfish. It's the most profoundly selfless thing he can do. To serve them. To die for them. That they might believe in him. Because only when they, when we believe in his name, can they, can we have eternal life. And have abundant life. Jesus alone can be entirely other-centred, while at the same time pointing everything back to himself. It is very profound. It's very beautiful. So we have a stunning picture in John 13 of love, of service, without limits. Meatloaf, I'm not a great fan of Meatloaf, but I, even I know his song. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. That's what Meatloaf saying. Well, there is nothing that Jesus will not do. Save for sin. Sin apart. He loves to the very last breath. And washing feet was an act of hospitality in the ancient world. You see it often in the Old Testament, probably more than you realise. The three guests who visited Abraham. The angels with Lot in Genesis 19. The servant going to find Rebekah in Genesis 24. The brothers, we only looked at it a few weeks ago when they were welcomed by Joseph in Egypt in Genesis 43. All of them talk about, probably haven't noticed it before, go, welcome, wash your feet. 
But they are self-washing, or there is a servant to wash their feet. But the only example of a superior washing the feet of an inferior is John 13. Nowhere else, nowhere else as far as I know is it attested to in Jewish literature, in Greco-Roman literature, do you have a superior washing the feet of an inferior. So turn to Jesus, the servant king. You don't know if you have tomorrow, but we have today. He's given us breath and grace and mercy today to turn to him. To humble yourself. The truth is, our feet are dirtier than we think. But Christ can wash them cleaner than we can imagine. So how ought my life to be different, knowing how much Jesus loves me? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That Jesus would do this for you. That Jesus has shown himself even more of a suffering servant. Not only to stoop down and wash feet, but die the death on the cross for sinners like you and me. That should matter how we live our lives. We truly should live lives of service. Because he serves us. It, set us. it will set us free for sure. From feeling that we need to prove ourselves to everybody. It will set us free from feeling that we aren't worth anything. Because what you do, what you live for, the sort of kindness, the grace that you show toward others, knowing what Jesus has done for you. How might our lives be different if we grasp just for a moment this evening how much Jesus loves us? And how extreme his service has been and is. John Calvin said, Though we think that we are at a distance from Christ, yet we ought to know that he is looking at us, for he loveth his own who are in the world. We have no reason to doubt that he still bears the same affection for us, which he retained here at the very moment of his death. So if you remember one thing from this afternoon, just do remember this, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. To God be the glory. Amen.